0: Good morning, family. How are you all doing in stage six? (laughs) Hey, who had a cold shower this morning? Anybody? Oh, you're all okay. Who didn't sleep so well last night? (laughs) Because power kept coming on and off. We had like crazy things happening at our house. So, But we are here, praise the Lord. And we have solar and we have the generator running and so we've got power. So praise the Lord for that. It's wonderful. We're very thankful for that. If you're yet uh, new today and you haven't been with our church before, or perhaps you've been visiting for the last couple of weeks and you're wanting to find out more about us, then you are so welcome after the service, at the end of the service, in our foyer hall, which is just outside the doors here on the left-hand side, you'll see a banner there that'll say Connect Lounge, and then you'll be able to meet with our wonderful, lovely Debbie, and uh, she'll tell you a little bit about our church, about who we are, what we believe, how you can be involved, and how we live out our faith. So I'll remind you about that at the end of the service again, but please be, uh, if you want to, just meet with her, and uh, just the volunteers that are there, they would so love to just have a cup of tea with you and share a A moment with you together. Okay, are we ready for the word this morning? Are you sure? Okay. Can I ask you to open your device, open your Bible, and we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 2 today. We're actually going to cover quite a chunk of scripture, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 today. How I've structured it is I've tried to create a bit of a sensible flow of the argument that follows through those three chapters of the scripture. So we're not going to work through those chapters verse by verse. What we're going to do is I'm going to sort of give headlines and then use verses to tell that headline's meaning. So it's a bit of a flow through this scripture, and I would ask that you please sort of stay with me to try and follow the argument that the author of the Hebrews does for us. As you remember, our series is entitled Fixed. And it's fixed, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's been our privilege over these last weeks to really just consider Jesus, to make sure that we behold him, because if we behold him, we can know him. And our desire, our heart's desire, is that we will know him for all of our lives and that we will continue to grow in our knowing of him and that we will remain faithful to know him right up until the end. Something happened. Oh, there we had it. Okay, can you hear me? It's softer, gentler, something happened. Okay, are we good? Okay, so let me, let's me let go to Hebrews chapter two. And uh, we're gonna start with verse one and uh, I'm gonna make some comments and there we go. It sounds, sounding different up here than I think with you, so sorry, the guys are sorting it out. Um, chapter, chapter two, verse one, I'm gonna read and then jump into this passage of Scripture and the argument that I believe he's making for us, or as as we see in the Scripture. Hebrews 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Now I'm I'm very aware that you read a scripture like this, it's it's quite dense. It feels like what, what's going on. So that's why I want to be a bit careful and work our way through this. But I want to start with this encouragement, this call that he gives us, where he says, We must pay the most careful attention. The the, the writer here is saying to us, pay attention, listen, take heed. Hear what I'm saying to you. Don't miss this. Something important is being communicated to you. Don't miss it. I mean, from time to time, we have to do that with each other, don't we? Where we have to say, pay attention now. Because something is about to be said or happened that you could mistake for not being important. Or you could miss it. Or you could be s- sort of just, you know, ab- busy somewhere else. But the writer is saying to us, pay attention. Pay attention attention. Why must we pay attention? He says, to, the, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Remember, we talking about the book of Hebrews and this idea of being fixed on Jesus. And we've spoken about how we want to make sure that we fix our eyes on Jesus, that we behold him, that we do not take our eyes off of him. And here he's saying to us, pay attention because there's a possibility that your focus could drift away from Jesus and the image that is used in the Greek here in the language is an image that was quite known for them at the time and it would be the image of a boat trying to enter a harbor now remember those days most of the harbors that they used were relatively small the boats that had to enter the harbor had no engine so they were not under their own power so they were very susceptible to the wind and the waves and the currents and everything that was going on. So whenever a captain of a boat or the pilot of a boat or you know, the fisherman or whoever it was had to now enter a harbor, they had to really pay attention and be focused so that they could enter the harbor despite the currents pushing them and the wind taking them away from the mouth of the harbor. It wasn't so easy. It wasn't so straightforward. You didn't just your Evinrude engine and off you go into the harbor. You had to read the wind. You had to understand the currents. And then if you missed it, it wasn't just, okay, let's just put on the engine, get back. You had to go all the way back out, adjust the sails, do the whole thing, and then try and get into the harbor again. So he's saying, pay attention. Pay attention. Otherwise, you're going to drift off course. And it and it, likens, it, it reminds us of the image of, fix your eyes on Jesus. But be careful because your gaze can drift. Will you recognize with me that we do live in a world with many currents, with many winds that blow, that from time to time wants to cause us to drift. That even those of us that have made the decision to say, and remember, he's not writing to the unbelievers, he's writing to the believers here. He's saying to the believers, you have chosen to fix your eyes on Christ. But I want you to pay attention because your your fix, your, your, your gaze may drift. You may lose your position. And that's a very important encouragement for us as believers. To remember that we can drift. We have a faithful father, as the word was this morning. A father that says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But you and I can drift. We have currents in this world that, because this is a broken world, because this is a world where there's rebellion in this world, we have made a decision to try and make life work on our own and be autonomous from God. There are all these currents that are consistently trying to pull us away from living a life that is fixed on Jesus. Just think of your own week this past week. Just think of the currents that you've had to negotiate in this week to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Perhaps one of the currents that we feel consistently around us is a current of fear. Fear that comes in. Fear that tells us, Jesus can't look after you. Jesus is not enough. God's wisdom won't sustain you. And fear can build up in our lives and creep up on us in this world. And the problem is when fear starts causing us to drift, it it leads us into more tricky spaces. One of the things that fear does is it causes you to take your eyes off Jesus and put your eyes on yourself. And you you start making choices and decisions, and you react to life, and the way you live is informed by fear. How you interact with people is informed by fear. The decisions you make is fear. And it it begins sometimes as a gentle, almost reasonable current. But before you know it, it's grabbed hold of you, and it's starting to cause you to drift. Drift. And, you, and you're missing the harbor. You can't get in because you're drifting. Immorality in our world is a current that we have to face all the time. Right now, we, we're swimming in a sea of images and thought patterns that, is, that we've been bombarded with all day long. And you know what it's like nowadays. You're sitting on your couch and you just, you know, you've got a bit of just breathing time. So you, you pick up your phone and you start scrolling. And you scroll on your phone and you see a little video on Facebook. And then that video is with an algorithm linked to another video. And then you watch that video. And then you watch another video. And before you know it, you've spent an hour and you don't actually know what you've done. Some of you look very guilty at this point in time. <laughs> Some of you are like, not me. I don't do Facebook. Yeah, you got some other challenges. <laughs> you know? Or, or, or we watch Netflix or whatever, and there's all these currents around. And, and before you know it, you've just started drifting. You, you've just turned your eyes. Or money. Money is a current. As Debbie spoke about earlier, we have this reality in our lives. We need money. None of us can live without money. We have to interact with money. We have to deal with money. But if we're not careful, it becomes this stream in our lives that causes us to drift. To drift away. To to take our eyes off Jesus again because we think, is Jesus really going to provide for me? Is Jesus really all that I need? And we drift He says, pay attention, pay attention. And this is a bit of a sobering word. I mean, it's nice to preach and say to Christians, God's got you, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine. But that's not what he says here. He says, pay attention. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore Such a great salvation. And that word ignore is a very important word. It's the word in the Greek amalesantes. And it means the following. It means to neglect through apathy or not to care enough about something. He says be careful because if you can drift. And if you drift from this great salvation that you've received from Jesus. If you ignore this. It leads to some And I'm going to talk about those some things just now. But we can ignore. We can neglect through apathy this truth that we have received. So when we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, it's so that, Lord, I may see the truth. I may behold the truth. And help me, Lord, that I will be arrested by the truth. My heart will be grabbed by the truth. That I will not become apathetic towards it. That I will not become sort of, ah, whatever, and not really care enough. I have to care deeply. These matters that the author of Hebrews is writing towards these believers are matters of life and death. He's taking this very seriously. He says to us, And remember last week I spoke about the the, the way he structures his argument is from from the lesser to the greater. Last week we said, if angels are great but they are less than Jesus, so how much more greater must Jesus be than the angels? Now he continues that way of thinking and he says, you must pay attention, don't drift away because you have received a greater message than even those in the Old Testament has received. In Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4, he says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He says, you have received a great message, a message of salvation. Now remember, the the Israelites also received a message of salvation. And, he, and this whole script, this whole portion, he consistently refers back to the time where the Israelites was let, left out of, let out of Egypt and was taken by God to the promised land. And he says, you, the Israelites, received a great message of salvation because there was a day where God said, let my people go. It was a, fantastic. That was a wonderful message of salvation. He says to the Christians now, he's saying, but you have received a greater message of salvation than the slaves did when they were told that they would be let free from slavery in Egypt. Your message of salvation is greater than that message. You have received a greater salvation. Their salvation may have changed their position as slaves. Your salvation will change your whole life. You have received a greater salvation. He says, not only have you... And this greater message that you have received was confirmed by God, by the angels, by the Holy Spirit, by signs and wonders. This is a fantastic, great message that you have received, greater than the message they received. Now, just stay with me. There's an argument that we're building. Not only was it a greater message than what the Israelites received, you've received it through a greater messenger than they received it. He talks about in Hebrews 3, verse 1 to 6. He says the following, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. And he carries on. He's saying, The Israelites received a great message of salvation through a great messenger. That great messenger was Moses. He was a great messenger. But he is less than the messenger of your salvation, which is Jesus. You have received not only a greater message of salvation, but you have received it from a greater messenger. Do you agree with me? Jesus is greater than Moses. Okay, so we've established now. Pay attention, because you've received a a great message of salvation, greater than the message that the Israelites received from a greater messenger than they've received it. Why is that important to remember? Because now we get to the point where it gets a bit sticky, gets a bit difficult. This is the point. If you don't pay attention to the message that you have received of your salvation from a greater messenger and a greater message of salvation, there will be punishment for you if you do not pay attention. And this is the argument he makes in Hebrews 2 verse 2 to 3. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received, it's just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Can you, do you follow the argument he's making from lesser to greater? He says if the Israelites were punished because they didn't receive And believe the message that they received, the great message of salvation, from their great messenger Moses. They didn't believe it, so they were punished. How can you think that you receive the greater message of salvation from the greater messenger that you will not be punished if you don't believe it? Now the word punishment is a difficult word, is it not? We don't like that word. We don't want to think of a God that punishes. Sometimes we try and deal with that word in the following way. We'll say, no, you know, God doesn't punish people. He just allows the natural consequences of things to happen. Do You know what I mean? Like, if, if you, you know, if God says, don't steal, but you steal, there's going to be natural consequences to that. You're going to probably get arrested, you know, bad things are going to happen to you. And God doesn't proactively do anything he just allows things to happen now that's there's some truth in that but can i tell you in this context with this word punishment in reference to the israelites it's a bit more proactive than that this is actually god getting involved not just letting things happen but stepping up and punishing people what did he punish the Israelites for what did they do wrong? The scripture tells us the thing that they failed at is they failed to believe him. This is how the story went. You'll you'll know this. So God comes to the Israelites through Moses and he says, "I want to take you to the Promised Land." So releases them from Egypt, takes them miracle through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness. They are in the wilderness for like a six weeks or two months or something. Then he brings them to the Jordan to enter them into the promised land. God says to them, I'm gonna take you into the promised land. I've given you the land. They send the spies, the spies go look, they say, ooh, there's some big fellows in this land. And, uh, but there's also great stuff. So they come back and, they, and they, they, they consider. Then they say, no, we're not going into the promised land. We don't think God Will give us the promised land. We don't think, we think the giants are too big. So they did not believe God. What what happened because of that? For 40 years they wandered in the desert. Walking around. God was faithful to them. God was good to them. God looked after them. Did amazing miracles for them. But it was never his plan for them to walk around in the desert for 40 years. He wanted them to be in the promised land. But because they didn't believe that he could do what he said he would do, they ended up in the desert wandering for 40 years till that generation died out and so that the next generation could enter into the promised land. So that was their punishment. Their punishment was for unbelief. They didn't believe the message That came from God. That I will give you the promised land. I will save you. And they didn't believe his messenger. How much more. What will happen to us. If this greater message. Of salvation. Given not by a man. But by God himself. That came and gave us the message of his salvation. If we choose not to believe him. Are we so. Wonderful to think that, there's no, that that'll have no bad effect on us. No, he says, there's punishment. Hebrews 3, verse 7, 7 to 13. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness where where you were, your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my way. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Tough stuff. I can feel it's quiet in this room. It's like, what are we talking about? Punishment. God is a God of love. God is a God of grace and mercy. We sang about his mercies this morning. Why do we talk about punishment? Stay with me. Hebrews 3, verse 14 to 19. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As, just has, been, as, just, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion. Who were, who were they who heard and rebelled were they not almost that those Moses led out of Egypt and with whom he was angry for 40 years was it not with those who sinned whose bodies perished in the wilderness and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not those who disobeyed so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief if i do not believe god It puts me in a very, very difficult place. Because if I say, if God says to me, I will save you, and I say, I don't believe you, what options do I then have? Because now I'm telling God that he's a liar. And remember, he's the one who created, he's the one that sustains, and he's the one that fulfills. There's nowhere else for me to go. Remember when Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to leave me also? They said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere else to go. So we've got to figure this out with you, God, because there's nowhere else to go. If you say God says, made a promise, you don't believe it, you call him a liar, if you turn away from him, what must he do? What must he do? Must he just do nothing? Must he just say, well, well, that's your choice. You do what you want. You do you. No. When our eldest was a baby, a couple of months old, one night, one particular sleep deprived night, he didn't want to go to bed. He was about three or four months old. And, uh, you know, new parents don't know anything about anything. And uh, this child was screaming, "High heaven. It was like, wah! You know. And uh, so we put him in his bed, and we like, you need to sleep now. Try medicine, try anything. He does not want to sleep. Went down for like, you know, half an hour. Like, you know. And you know, parents, there's nothing that gets under your skin like a scream of your child. It's like, you can't ignore it. You just, oh, it's like freaking me out. So eventually... Natasha's growling at me. I'm growling at her. The child's screaming. I have to do something. So I decided I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to give him a hiding. Now he's three or four months old. So what does that look like? That means on the little diaper, you just like, with a couple of fingers, you just go like that. It makes a noise. He doesn't really feel much. And it's supposed to. It did not work. He just continued to scream. Like, ah! He was just like, you know, yeah. So I gave it about 15 more minutes and round two, here we go. Give him another hindy. I don't know how eventually that night, I think we all just collapsed from exhaustion. We went to sleep eventually. Guess what the next morning? The next morning we go to his little cot where he is and the poor child's got measles. He was crying because he was feeling sick. Now, As his father, why did I punish him? Why did I think in that moment punishment will help? Now, if I'm honest in my humanity, partly it was because I was frustrated. I didn't really know what else to do. So I thought I'm going to punish him and this will solve the problem. Secondly, that's the dark side of me. Perhaps the better side of me was I knew this child needs to sleep. I can't just let him suffer the consequences of his not wanting to sleep. I have to help him sleep. I have to motivate him. I have to communicate to him that you must sleep. And at three months old, I'm not going to write him a story, a poem, a book that's going to help convince him. That's what I had. So at least there was part of me that did it because I wanted to help him. It was a loving thing to do. It didn't work. It wasn't the right thing, but at least it was a loving thing to do. Now, when God punishes, we have to remember, firstly, that when God punishes, you deserve it. God never punishes anything that doesn't deserve punishment because God is righteous, God is holy, God is perfect. Moses had an encounter with God where God said, I am slow to anger, abounding in mercy. And that's how God is. He doesn't want to punish. It's not his first reaction. He builds up slowly. Sometimes in my estimation, way too slowly. Not when it comes to punishing me, but when it comes to punishing other people. <laughs> With me, he's a bit quick. With some of you, he's way too slow. He shouldn't have gotten involved a long time ago. He's kind, gentle, patient. And he never punishes more than he has to. He never uses a cannon to kill a machi. Like I sometimes did with my children. You know, like I'm so fed up. So when God punishes, it's deserved, first of all. And secondly, God never punishes because he's frustrated. Because he's tired. Because he's angry. Because the truth is, no matter what I do, it doesn't change God. It doesn't make him feel exasperated and like, oh, so now he punishes us just so that we stop the nonsense and stop bothering him. So when God punishes, it's a difficult thing, but I want to say we've got to be very careful to have a Christianity where there's no no understanding of a loving father that says, I'm not going to let you carry on that way. I'm going to do something. In fact, the book of Hebrews, we'll read it later, says God disciplines those whom he loves. If he does not discipline you, you are not a legitimate child. How many of you have been disciplined by God? If you haven't, just keep going. Just keep going. I can, I remember times in my life and, you know, I'm not finished with it yet. I'm sure there will be some more. But I can remember times in my life where God had to discipline me and punish me. And it didn't feel particularly loving at the time. But later I was so thankful and I went, Lord, thank you that you didn't just let me carry on that way. But that you care enough to get involved. God doesn't sit at the edge of the universe somewhere, as somebody said, swinging his feet and saying, whatever. Whatever. Man Man alive. The scripture says he opposes the proud. That's not just lets the proud get, you know, feel the heat of their stupidity. That is, I'm gonna get in your face and I'm gonna oppose you. Why the pride? The pride, what is pride in scripture? Pride fundamentally is, Lord, I don't need you. I'm gonna do this myself. I don't need you to save me. I'm gonna save myself. God says, I cannot let you live with that attitude. That attitude, if I don't deal with it on earth, is going to get you into eternity of trouble. I'd rather deal with you now. So this is what the writer of the Hebrews says to us. He says, if the Israelites that had a great messenger Moses received a great message of salvation from Egypt and a great promise to the promised land, didn't believe God, and they were punished, what about you? If you've received a great message from Jesus himself, the greatest messenger, tells you he wants to save you and lead you into his promised land, if you choose not to believe him, is there not punishment for you also? Now when I read that, I go, Now what? Am I not now worse off than they are? And and that's where the scripture starts talking about, is there a rest? If they couldn't enter into the rest, what hope do I have? If I've got a greater punishment, greater consequences to my actions, greater accountability that is expected of me, they couldn't do it, what hope do I have to do it? That's what Hebrews 4 verse 1 to 2 says. Therefore, Since the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have heard the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. For if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8 to 11, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of their disobedience. They couldn't enter the rest. And they had a lesser messenger with a lesser message and a lesser judgment but they couldn't enter the rest. What hope do I have? If I've got a greater messenger with a greater message, therefore a greater judgment and a greater punishment, where am I going? What am I going to do? How am I going to enter this rest? Is the gospel now saying to me, just try harder than they did? Just be more faithful? Just be more diligent? No, what was their problem? What was their basic problem? Why did they deserve punishment? Because of unbelief. They did not believe that God could save them in the way that he said he would save them. So, what would be my problem? It would be unbelief. So, here's our hope. The title of our message today is Fixed on my advocate. So, in one sense, they had a law that found them guilty and judged them they had a high priest, a guy called Moses, who was their advocate that stood before them to get them saved from this law. But their high priest failed because he was a man. Moses himself couldn't get into the promised land. As great a leader as he was, as wonderful things as God used him for, parting the Red Sea, bringing waters out of rocks, you know, feeding the nation for 40 years, you know, all of that brilliant stuff, that amazing miracles that. Fantastic man that Moses was. There was none as humble as Moses that walked the earth. He was a phenomenal leader, a phenomenal man. Yet he failed. He could not enter the promised land. He was not a good enough advocate. And this is where we are different. We may have a greater messenger, a greater message with a greater judgment. But that is all balanced by we have a greater advocate also. Our advocate comes and stands and is good enough, big enough, strong enough, God enough to counteract all of that punishment that we deserve. Our advocate. Why? Why is our advocate better? Because our advocate wasn't just merely a man. Our advocate is God. Himself, Jesus. Last week we spoke about the incarnation. Jesus that came and took on the form of a man. So our advocate is this amazing high priest that came as God and as man. And that's very important. That qualified him in a unique way to be an advocate that nobody else could be ever. And I choose the word advocate because in South Africa now, advocates, they're on the news every single day. It seems like we as a nation can't talk to one another anymore unless it's through an advocate that charges you thousands and thousands of rands. We've become litigious and it's all about, you know. But Jesus is our advocate. And what qualifies him, that this great message with this great salvation, this great consequence, this judgment, if you don't hear it, that he comes and says, But I, the Son of God, in the form of a man, will answer this judgment. In Hebrews 4, verse 14, it says, Ah, oh, sorry. Hebrews 2, verse 6 to 9, it says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. But we do see Jesus. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that he might, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. This Jesus came and became a human like us in terms of walking on this earth to counteract our unbelief. In his humanity, he did something remarkable. Remember we spoke about, last week, we spoke about Adam and Eve. When they were in the garden before they sinned, they had their eyes fixed on the Father. And as long as their eyes were fixed on the Father, they could develop and grow in their mental capacity, spiritual capacity, relational capacity, the ability to love, to become more and more like God because they were consumed by him. The moment they fell in sin, they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They took their eyes off God. They put it on themselves. And suddenly the deterioration started because now they're trying to figure out how do I live life without God? What is right and wrong without God? And, And everything started collapsing. So the earth was then subject to this law of the curse of sin and death. God said, if you sin, you will die. So because of Adam's sin and Eve's sin, we are now under the curse of death. This curse of death is our prison. It's our corruption. We can't help ourselves, but we are dying. And consistently... Even though for moments we may fix our eyes on Jesus, we turn, on God, sorry, we turn our eyes on God like the Israelites did for a while, and then they would turn away again. And this corruption just keeps growing. Because man is now in a state of corruption. So here comes Jesus, Son of God in a human form. And as a human, what did Jesus do? He fixed his eyes on the Father and never looked away, not for a moment. He consistently kept his gaze on the Father. And he restored that a human being can fix their eyes on the Father. He was led into the desert where he met Satan. Satan comes to him and says, you're starving. Why are you starving? You can help yourself. You can turn the stones into bread. You or the answer to your own problems. What he was actually saying to him is, you can, autonomously from God, your Father, solve your own problem. You don't need God. You can take care of yourself. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus looks at the sa- Satan and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth out of the mouth of God. Jesus literally saying to Satan, I would rather die of hunger than have one moment with my gaze diverted from my Father. He is what my life depends on. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He prays, he says, Father, he's sweating blood. He says, Father, can, if it's possible, can this sacrifice, this cup pass me by? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Tempted like us in every way, the scripture says. Going through all the struggle of humanity, just like you and I did, yet never taking his eyes off the Father. In his greatest moments of fear, he didn't look away from the Father. He said, if the Father wants me to die this horrible death, I am better off dying this horrible death with my eyes on the Father than taking my eyes off the Father and finding a way out of this horrible death. He kept his eyes on the Father. And he died. Never breaking gaze. And he did that as a human being. But he was God at the same time. It was important that he took upon himself humanity. Because God cannot die. Jesus... If he didn't take on humanity, he couldn't come and die for us because God cannot die. But in his humanity, he could come and die, allow us to kill him. And in his Godlikeness, he was risen from the grave on the third day. God and man together. Not, you cannot separate them. Because Jesus had to die to conquer death, he had to conquer death to reverse corruption. Therefore, we could be reborn and we could have no longer be under the curse of death, but we can now be under the blessing of God, under the salvation of life. Because our advocate did that for us. A, a picture that I have in my mind, which is fraught with mistakes, so don't take it too far. But it's like you're walking down a road someday and you fall in a hole. Deep, deep enough that you can't climb out of it. Now you're in this hole. And you hear somebody coming along and they say, hey, what are you doing in the hole? You're like, I fell down, you know, I've fallen in the hole, you know. And uh, the, the person says, okay, don't worry, I'm going to help you. And so you think, okay, all they're going to do is throw a rope down and pull me out. But the next minute, the person's in the hole with you. And you're like, now what does that help? I was in the hole, but at least you were outside, now we're both in the hole. The person says, it's okay, I'm not afraid of holes. I'm going to pick you up and put you outside the hole. And you go, okay, great. So the person puts you on their shoulders, lifts you up. You go out the hole. But now the person's in the hole. you outside, but the person's in the hole. And the person says, don't worry about me. It's okay. I can do holes. I know how to handle holes. And so off you go. The person dies in the hole. But a little while later, there you see the person walking in the street. They... Outside of the hole. How did that happen? Because they conquered the hole. See, you and I fell in a hole and we couldn't get out. Our advocate didn't just come and shout at us and say, hey, you stupid person, why are you in a hole? Let me tell you how to get out of the hole. Our advocate jumped in the hole with us. Because he knew, as God and as man, he can conquer that hole. That hole doesn't have a threat for him. So he jumped up, he picked us up, he said, now, you, now this is where the analogy breaks down because I can't live outside of the hole without that guy in the hole with me. So, you know, but he lifts me up and then he covers the hole. He says, if you believe in me, and that's all he asks, he says, believe in me. Just like those Israelites had to believe that God can lead them out the desert and take them to the promised land, Jesus says, believe me. I am your advocate. I am the one that took on humanity and I am the one that died in your place. Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power over death. That is the devil. And free those who all all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants... For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful priest, high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. My advocate says, I have kept my eyes on the Father. Believe in me. And I will work by my Holy Spirit in you to do the same thing. I have died so that the curse of the law can be broken, that you can be set free, and you no longer have to fear this punishment that was due to you. Because I have paid the punishment on your behalf. Believe in me. Believe in me. And therefore the writer of the Hebrews says, pay attention to this Jesus. Don't drift away from him. There is nothing else for you. No other advocate can save you. Pay attention. Don't drift away from him. Don't ignore him. Don't ignore him, but fix yourself on him. And this is the wonder of Jesus. Never again, never again, will any human being be able to say, nobody knows what I'm going through. No matter how lonely you feel, you can never say, Nobody knows how lonely I am. Because Jesus said, my father, why have you forsaken me? He truly felt in that moment that alone in his humanity. Never again can anybody say it's not fair. Nobody knows how unfair it is. Because Jesus says, I know. There is nothing you and I can go through where Jesus cannot say, I know, I know. But you don't have to be ruled by that loneliness, that fear, that pain, that injustice, whatever it is. You don't, I have conquered it on your behalf. And you too can fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Won't you stand with me? This is a, I'm very aware that this is a, a little bit more of a somber, weighty kind of message. I trust that as we go from here, you'll not go with a fear of punishment, but with a joy of salvation. To go, Jesus. But we got to know Jesus really saved us from, from death and the punishment we deserved. That's why I, I, I keep with him. I believe in him. Because he's everything. I love him. There's no life without him. Can I pray with us together this morning? Father, we welcome your presence by your Holy Spirit right here in this room. And those that are watching us online and joining us in the stream and on the radio, we thank you for your presence. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are my advocate. That no accusation Of the law, no accusation of the evil one is greater than your sacrifice. I therefore choose to believe you that you will save me, that you have saved me, and that I'm saved by you. I believe that. I need nothing more than you, Jesus. No good works, no other spiritual or natural authority or activity. All I need is Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. If you've given your life to Jesus already, won't you just today say, thank you, Jesus, that you saved me. If you've not yet given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you today, do not harden your heart. Don't ignore Jesus any longer. Don't turn away from Him. You have to make a decision. At some point in your life, you're going to have to make a decision. Don't waste time. As we end the service today, I'm going to invite you to come to the front and our team will be here. Come and let them pray with you. Give your heart to Jesus. We had a number of people last week respond. Come and give your life to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. I can't do this on my own. If you're a believer, but you're, you know you've been drifting. Won't you just in this moment today sort of say, Lord, forgive me for the drifting. Forgive me for letting something else become worthy of my attention and cause me to, to doubt, cause me to have unbelief, cause me to have affection elsewhere. Help me, Holy Spirit, to turn my gaze upon Jesus and to fix my eyes on Jesus. And Holy Spirit, help me not to drift. If you need prayer in that regard, you're also so welcome to come and let our team pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we bless you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for being with us today. If you need prayer and you're online, please send an email to pray for me at Hatfield. If you are new, please go to the visitors lounge with Debbie and she'd love to meet with you there. And then also our Hope Center booth where you can meet David and Mel just around our care ministry and our care hub. So please, but if you need prayer this morning, if you want to give your life to Jesus or if you, if you just need prayer, just come to the front. Our team will be so glad to pray with you and help you in that just that prayer and that decision that you have to make. So. Bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.